Welcome to Wild Utah, the podcast of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. I'm Dave Pacheco. In this episode, we're talking about the Bears Ears National Monument Management Plan. Originally proclaimed by President Obama in 2016, the 1.3 million acre monument was slashed by 85% under former President Trump in 2017. Under pressure from certain Utah politicians, his administration installed a management plan favoring other land uses over conservation and protection of ancient indigenous sites. Today, it's been just over a year since President Biden restored the monument to its original boundaries, and it's time for his administration to rewrite the Trump-era plan and re-emphasize conservation of the ancient sites, and conservation more generally, as the primary purposes of the monument. SUA will, of course, fully participate in the planning process, emphasizing that the Bureau of Land Management should prioritize indigenous knowledge and ongoing native uses of these lands, while protecting its vast wild character as the national treasure that it is. Before we turn to our guest, I want to briefly emphasize that the open comment period is your golden opportunity to shape the future of the Bears Ears Monument. It's at this stage that the Bureau of Land Management receives input from the public to prioritize issues they should focus on. After listening, please submit comments by October 31st. In the episode notes, we've included a link for anyone who has not yet submitted their personal comments to do so. Again, that's by October 31st. Our guest is Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk. Regina is a fierce advocate for nature. She has served as a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribal Council. She's a former co-chair of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition and helped lead the effort that resulted in the Bears Ears being designated as a national monument. She has recently been appointed by Department of Interior Secretary Deb Holland to serve as the chair of the current Bears Ears National Monument Advisory Committee, and she also serves on SUA's Board of Directors. Thank you for taking the time to join us today, Regina. Thank you. A couple of weeks back, uh, you participated with SUA staff in a webinar that updated listeners on the status of both Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. While the current public comment period is done for Grand Staircase Escalante, the deadline for submitting scoping comments for the long-term Bears Ears Management Plan is still underway, as I mentioned, ending on October 31st. I want to start with something you said in the webinar that describes the difficulty of working as a single tribe to seek protections like those ultimately embodied in Bears Ears National Monument. We're going to play that clip now. For many years, I think many of us had tried to ensure the access and protection of these lands individually, and it really wasn't getting us anywhere. So when the vision came to be about coming together, that is when we really began to see that it was in numbers that we could really gain that momentum to seek protection and to really learn from one another and to heal our own relationships between one another and to see that tomorrow was really going to encompass being able to join with others beyond our own. I love that quote. It speaks to the importance of trust and understanding between people who look at the world differently, yet who have the same core beliefs. But I know there's a more personal story behind that realization. 
Regina, was there a specific time or event or an epiphany that confirmed for you the importance of everybody working together to provide the collective voice necessary to protect these lands? Absolutely. And it wasn't until I was actually asked to participate and help kind of be present in the conversation in July of 2015 when an organizational meeting was set up at the casino for the with the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. And in that initial conversation, I had the honor to be in the presence of many tribes, um, many Paiute tribes, many Arizona tribes near and around the Grand Canyon area, the Hopi, the Navajo, a few of the Pueblo tribes. They were all in the same room. But the one thing that struck me very strongly was the reason behind this meeting that was being organized. And one of the statements that was made initially was, as individual tribes, several of us had attempted to express that this beautiful place needed to be protected. And the experience that many of us had was alone seeking that protection was really not going anywhere. A nonprofit by the name of Utah Dene Bekea had put a lot of effort in collecting some traditional data and also made those same very attempts and came to that very same point of acknowledgement that as an individual group, it was difficult to, to seek that protection of those areas. And so it made complete sense that we would come together as many, especially in respect to the tribes that are federally recognized, to harness that ability to conduct government-to-government conversations, holding the federal government to be accountable for their federal trust responsibilities. And that's really the point that I realized how important it was for us to come together as a group rather than singly reaching out and trying to seek protection and access to this beautiful landscape. And I think that that strategy clearly worked in the long run and really wouldn't have uh, in a disparate sort of manner. So uh, I think it was really important that, that you and others recognize that. I can tell you that SUA became involved not too long after that, because we were reached out to by tribal leadership, by Utah Dene Bakea, uh, who really kind of served as a, as a core organizing function, uh, an entity to not only realize that all these voices were necessary, but that they needed to sing all together. So I think that was a really important point. I want to ask you about an important aspect of the campaign to protect Bears Ears and frankly, any other place of historical importance to indigenous people. And that's about the healing power that protecting places like this have for both indigenous people who are asking for the protections, but for others in a broader society as well. This campaign, though inherently about land protection, goes way beyond that. Can you explain for us how the process of protecting a place like Bears Ears brings about healing? Absolutely. First and foremost, just taking that time to acknowledge our own individual healing, to be able to 
communicate that to others was absolutely necessary. So we knew we needed to have a sense of healing within ourselves and within the group. And it was at that point that we prioritized healing as it would become the the core of our campaign. But we also began to realize that there was a whole broader sense of healing that was recognized as we began to look at the for example the the veterans how they healed their experiences and many other groups like I I know that I have a, a very good friend who has a daughter who has had a condition that she experiences some extreme health issues And it's through her ability to reach out to the land, especially to this landscape that we were seeking designation for and protection, is where they found a sense of healing in terms of many groups. And so when you really think about it, it's it's healing on so many different levels, a relationship to one another, relationship to land, relationship to past and trauma. It's the process of healing at a very, very high level and broad sense. It was something that we didn't intentionally envision, but it's something that presented itself in a very natural way. Well, you know, your explanation really helps me understand how I actually healed through this process. And I never realized that it was happening until I, and of course, this isn't about me, but I think that a lot of people in my position from the dominant culture here can relate to to this story. And, you know, I, in 2016, when I was at a symposium up in uh, Ogden, uh, making a presentation about Bears Ears and the campaign, I found myself talking to this audience and telling a story that I'd never told before. And it just occurred to me on the spot. And that is that my family, my mom's side of the family, grew up in San Pete County down in central Utah, and there's a monument on the spring marking the dominance of the Mormon culture that came down there in the late 1850s and 1860s. And this was at the time of the, the Ute Blackhawk Wars. Uh, and the story on the monument, I knew as a kid, I saw it as a kid, and I never realized how important it was until I was standing in front of this audience in Ogden and the story on the monument literally says we came down the first year and we were pushed back by the natives. We had to go back to Salt Lake. We came down a second year and we came down with more people, yet we were pushed out again. And we came back a third time and we made the border around the spring that bears this town's namesake permanent. We built a wall around it. And from that point forward, the Native Americans didn't come back. And it's that story that made me think, wow, I I have some healing to do here too. It was my people who did that. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that kind of thing because at least those from Utah and really across the country that the atrocities that were done in our name, in America's name, need to be healed. And this process of Bears Years, to me, that's my personal story. And and I hope that others in my position as a middle-aged white male 
can relate to that because I think we all need to heal. And I think that goes to what you're saying, that sometimes we don't know where it's coming from and suddenly it's there that we realize we have to heal and this is an opportunity to do it. Absolutely. I think that the whole process of trying to achieve reciprocity, whether it's between you know another individual or a group, as well as with all that's natural around us. I think we've all found ourselves in positions that we do need to ask for forgiveness and we need to forgive ourselves in order to grow and move forward. Yeah, it just goes to show how much bigger of a campaign this Bearsers campaign has been than merely about land. So, you know, I this does really bring up a, a related subject to healing, and that's collaborative management of Bears Ears between the federal land agencies, like in this case, the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service. Can you explain to us what this means as a practical manner and you know where getting to real collaborative management stands? Uh, isn't this part of what everyone is striving for to be described in detail in the management plan is collaborative management? Absolutely. So originally, when the five tribes came together and we were putting together our original proposal, one of the pieces that we strongly wanted to keep embedded in that document was collaborative management. And that would be to be able to join together with the federal agencies and other groups to be able to institute some of our knowledge within those management plans to incorporate and braid into those documents some of the traditional knowledge that has long lived within our people, that have guided us, that have always been a part of our lives. Many have many different names for different terms, names for processes, but at the end of the day, as an indigenous person, as a Ute woman, it's just life to us. These are things that have come second nature to us. These are things that we just do. It's, you know, because of the changes that we have come up in this time and day and age that we no longer live out on the land and we no longer have the same relationship with all that's natural around us, which is one of the reasons why we want to seek out collaborative management because we want to be able to not only honor and remember but to do it together we all have different types of relationships with the different resources and one another i know that one good example was with our seasons as you people we've moved within seasons we wintered low and summered high and so you know, when you think about that type of relationship with our surrounding, we also recognize other people that may have been using the areas. And we naturally, by seasons, made sure that we were thoughtfully moved out of those areas so that others could utilize the different resources amongst the indigenous people. There was a lot of unwritten agreements and a lot of unwritten management plans. And we would I think the, for the most part, love to see it live on. And the only way that we can do that is by helping one another understand and to help educate one another about how it is our lives were conducted and how we would like to be able to pass it on to the next generations. 
Yeah, there's a lot of work involved in just that aspect. You know, I, I want you to elaborate for us a little bit. You know, in the webinar, uh, you talked about your current role as chair of the Monument Advisory Committee and how that committee makes recommendations only and is not a decision-making body. I want to play another clip from the webinar that starts with an explanation of your experiences so far in that advisory role, but then unveils a deeper problem within the land management agencies. It's been interesting in seeing how movement forward is going to look, but it also has showed me the uncertainty of how people and the agencies are trying to deal with something that has been implemented into the proclamation, but how do we now incorporate it into agency culture? And how do we ensure that traditional knowledge holds its place within these management plans? So you mentioned in that quote, the difficulty in changing agency culture to embrace traditional knowledge as a management perspective. And it kind of harkens on what you were just talking about with incorporating collaborative management and traditional knowledge in the management plan. Can you explain what you mean by agency culture and why you think it's so important that it change as it relates to the future management of Bears Ears? Absolutely. So agency culture is largely based around a lot of policies and a lot of laws, which are written very rigidly and, and specifically. A lot of times we find it that there is no room for the indigenous people or any other group to recommend or suggest different areas that, that might be useful in terms of knowledge. But there is an important piece within process and the federal agencies and their culture. You know, there's opportunities for public process. Those are absolutely huge. But there's also those windows of consultation between the federally recognized tribes or other people, other indigenous groups that should allow for information to be shared. The culture within agencies is so rigid and so defined that sometimes it's it's very different between culture and traditional knowledge that a lot of indigenous people share or possess. And it's very difficult to interpret to our elders, per se, about how things are done in the governmental world and agency culture versus what some of our elders might see as all we need to do is just share it and talk about it. And it's not that simple to solidify within management plans, for example. Do you think it's going to help that the Secretary of Interior, the, the first Native American Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, that her presence will help in some way to change that agency culture? I hope so. I, You know, it's been my experience as a former elected leader that a lot of times when we would take trips into Washington, D.C. and be in meetings with different agencies and department heads, a lot of times we were taking the majority of our meeting time just re-accounting history and trauma to where I think right now the the culture is a little bit more conducive to getting past those introductory recounts of, of history. And maybe some of those conversations are a little bit 
more cohesive and moving us in a in a different direction of getting some work done. I I hope that um, a lot of the lead that she has put out there to help people understand and even reconcile some of the the traumas. For example, the investigative report on boarding schools. I hope that helps people understand some of that so that we don't have to recount it during every meeting, that it may impact some of those conversations and that we can actually begin to move forward and do the work. No, I hope so too. Uh, I think it's long, long overdue in this country. And really as a, a worldwide leader, I think that it needs to start here in America that we need to recognize admit, understand the past history, the difficulties and the atrocities that were happening back then that are still resulting in people living without water, people living off the grid, that the differences in populations and how we live in a city versus living on a reservation, for example, are still, the, the divide is still vast. And I hope that her presence will will help in some way to close that gap. And, you know, with that, I, uh, I want to say thank you, Regina, for joining us today. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure to work alongside of you here uh, at SUA uh, through our board. And, uh, you know, I just have to say personally that uh, it's an honor to be working with you. Uh, you've shown your light brightly to a lot of people out there, and I'm included in that. And I just want to, again, say thanks for all you do. Thank you. It's my honor. Wild Utah is recorded at SUA's main office in Salt Lake City on equipment purchased through the generosity of our members. SUA is primarily member-funded. Over 90% of our revenue comes directly from people who care about protecting Southern Utah's Red Rock country. We're proud of that because it keeps our voice independent. If you'd like to help protect Wild Utah today, please head to SUA.org and click the Donate button. We appreciate your support. Wild Utah's theme music, What's Worth, is composed by Moab singer-songwriter Haley Noel Austin. Our interlude music, Chuck's Guitar, is by Larry Pattis. Post-studio editing and production is by Laura Borshevsky. To stay informed about current events at SUA, Visit us at SUA.org and click on Get Involved to discover how you can join the movement to protect Wild Utah. To receive information and alerts via text message, text the word Utah to 52886. Again, text the word Utah to the number 52886. Follow the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance on Facebook, on Twitter at Southern UT Wild, and on Instagram and TikTok, at Protect Wild Utah. And be sure to subscribe to the Wild Utah podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. Visit sua.org forward slash podcast for additional ways to subscribe and to access our archive of previous episodes. On behalf of SUA, I'm Dave Pacheco. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We hope you can join us for the next episode of Wild Utah.